listening to the Deep Roots Podcast, where we're all about giving you the confidence to move beyond pain and into performance. My name is Lance Enerson, and I'm your host. Hey, hey everybody. What's up? Welcome back to the Deep Roots Podcast. Um, this is episode six, and I'm talking about something that I'm super excited about, something that I really enjoy, and that is space. I know, sounds ridiculously exciting, right? Um, but before we get into this, I want you to pause the podcast. If you've been enjoying this, pause it, go on to wherever it is that you listen to your podcast, that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is, and leave a review. A five-star review would be awesome, but if there's something that I can improve to bring you more value to where you're getting more out of the time that you spend with these conversations, please let me know, and I would be happy to incorporate the things that I can to improve the podcast and share it with your friends. Take the screenshot of, of your phone right now, put it on on your social media, whatever it is that you like to use to talk to your friends and family and let them know if this is something that's bringing you value. And so let's jump right in talking about space. Uh, space is a thing that we need to make our very best decisions. We, we need space because we get so neck deep, so quick, so easy in our day-to-day lives. And, you know, this is something that I actually wasn't going to talk about this, but now I'm thinking about it, um, that happened to me really recently. So I have apparently, I know this is a thing, but I have an exposed root on one of the molars in my, my mouth, my upper right side, and it is horribly painful um i i thought i had like this like a terrible cavity or something so scheduled an appointment with the dentist and went in there and you know they took the x-rays and i'm expecting to you know see like this black hole in the side of my head where like they're just gonna have to take off like the upper like half of my my mouth to get rid of this huge cavity that's going to be there and there's nothing there um, what it was is just that apparently my root is showing through on the side of my gum, just like right at the, where like your tooth meets your gum. And it's extremely, extremely sensitive. And so what the dentist ended up doing was putting a sealant over that exposed, you know, part of the root of my tooth. And it was extremely painful. Um, I, like I had my hands squeezing together like my whole body was absolutely tense just not just trying not to jump up and you know kick this guy in the throat for putting this thing on this you know the most sensitive thing that I ever felt in my entire life as far as pain and you know it was it was horrible but in that moment the only thing that I could think of was the pain and not moving because I was hoping that what he was doing would be, you know, that it would be worth it, that I was going to get some sort of payout to going through this thing that was so painful. And, you know, just thinking about that, like I had zero space in that moment. Like something horrible were to happen and, you know, I mean, something horrible happens to the dentist every time you're there, right? <laughs> but if something horrible were to happen, like I would have zero capacity to be able to deal with that situation because I had zero mental and emotional space. I had zero bandwidth to devote to anything other than holding still in that chair. And that's, that's really what I'm talking about with this whole space thing. 
right? If if you don't have space internally when you're confronting something that is difficult, something that you care a lot about, you know, anything that you're really invested in, you're absolutely going to be making poor decisions. And those poor decisions pile up over time because they don't have to be really big decisions, right? So, and we can talk about this in terms of sports, you know, in terms of any any sporting event that, you know, goes on longer than just a few seconds. If I have zero space and I have to make a bunch of little decisions, you know, if, if I'm a lineman and I make a bunch of very small decisions that in and of themselves, you know, taken alone, they don't, they don't really matter. But all of those little mistakes, because I am so deep in my head that I'm afraid that I'm not, that I'm not blocking right, that I'm not doing my job, that I'm not, you know, pulling my weight, whatever the thing is that I am struggling with, if I don't have any space between me and that objective, then I'm going to perform poorly, no matter what, because my decision-making process is going to be driven more by fear, more by scarcity, more by automatic physiological processes than me actually considering the thing that's going on or the training that I should have had for that thing to be taking over. And the reason this happens nine times out of 10 is because we get into a very sympathetic dominant state. Our physiological, our neurological state is very sympathetic so we get stuck into that fight or flight state and you know, we refer to it as a fight or flight state, but that's really not a very accurate description because it's fight, flight, and freeze. And that's actually the option that most people end up taking in their day-to-day lives. You know, we get confronted with something and most people don't fight. A lot of people run away, but the most common one is that people freeze, especially if they are not directly physically threatened. And, you know, I have a really good example of this in my own life of something that, you know, this is just a memory that's super, super vivid for me. I remember getting off the bus uh, near the Prospect Park station and there's a traffic circle there right on that corner of the park um, in Brooklyn. And, you know, I was just getting off off the bus, minding my own business and looked up and I noticed that there was some sort of like altercation going on. There's uh, a group and it looked like a gang and there was, I guess the leader of the gang was really just letting this other guy have it that was not with them, um, but he, he was just yelling at him, he was pushing him and this guy was really, he was terrified, right? And this is all happening super fast. And he, he's terrified. He's like, man, just leave me alone. My mom's with me. Like, not not now. Just trying to really, uh, you know, calm the other guy down. And the the leader of the gang, he ends up just punching the other dude in the face. And so the other guy, he just starts running. And um, the guy that punched him, the aggressor in, in this situation, he pulls out um, a box cutter from, you know, from his jacket pocket and he just starts stabbing the other guy in the back, probably stabbed him like 10, 15 times. He was stabbing him in the back, in the side, and they ran right in front of me, probably, I don't know, 10, 
15 feet away across the crosswalk um, towards the stairs that went down to um, down to the the subway station and there was a foot cop that was there and he you know he yelled at the guy to put you know to put up his hands and um because the other dude had fallen down now that had been stabbed like 10 or 20 times something like that and you know he stabbed him like once or twice more and um he put up his hands and there was another police car there was an unmarked car that was in the traffic circle and it that car pulls up onto the sidewalk lady jumps out and she she cuffs the guy that you know was was stabbing the other dude and you know like i i thought that there was like they were filming something for like law and order or whatever because like that's not super uncommon in you know in the city for them to be filming you know something like that that you could happen upon but i'm also i'm looking around for all these cameras and stuff and there wasn't any like this this dude had literally just attacked somebody else um and stabbed him a bunch of times you know they, they started out probably like 50 yards away but at you know one point i could have taken a couple steps and they would have ran right into me and you know like f- for me I, like that would have been considered a very much a freeze situation and it was a freeze situation because i was not at all neurologically emotionally mentally prepared for something like that to happen i mean i was sitting on the bus minding my own business getting out and i got off the bus and you know like that that's something that happened and i'm not saying that the correct thing for me to do would have been to intervene in that that was going on but i wasn't making any decision really i would i didn't have a decision making process that was going on it was more of me just observing just watching and that's not the best position to be in right when something like that's going on you definitely want to be able to assess the situation quickly and correctly to be able to you know defend the people that you might be responsible for whether it's your friends or family that you know you don't want to just end up being a victim because you're not able to process what's going on and that's really the big thing with the whole fight flight and freeze you know we're we're not we're not rodents right that whole fight flight or freeze thing like we're we're not hiding from the owl that is swooping around about to you know try and take the mouse to go eat it that's not something that's happening we're not very often at least being stalked or hunted by a mountain lion hopefully not ever and that freeze reaction will very rarely serve you very well now if that same situation were to arise i feel confident that i would be able to make the quick decisions that would need to be made you know if i was getting off that bus with my six-year-old son i feel very confident that i would be able to take stock of both my internal and external resources for me to be able to, you know, take an active role in what my responsibilities would be as a father in that situation had other things happen and things were to, you know, really go south. And that's not because I have necessarily any more self-defense training or anything now versus then, but I've improved my ability to create space for myself better be able to make the decisions that need to be made when they need to be. And this ability really is something that's indispensable, not only for life, but also 
in sport to be able to make objective decisions. You know, if if you can make an objective decision when somebody is attacking you or attacking somebody um, that you care about or just somebody something like that is happening around the people that you care about and you can make those decisions on the fly when you need to, you absolutely are going to be able to do the same thing on the field. That's when you're going to be able to call those audibles when you need to call them. That's when you're going to be able to perform in the way that you need to perform to carry out the task that you are in charge of for your team. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this whole idea because really stress is stress. It doesn't matter what the situation is. You know, it doesn't matter if you're seeing an attempted murder or if you're playing basketball, you're playing football, and you're part of a game that is important to to the team, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Your nervous system is going to interpret stress as stress, and you can control what's going to be happening there. You can control the output that comes from that interpretation with your breath. So let's let's talk about how. We've talked at length in previous episodes about the nervous system. Okay, we've talked about sympathetic versus parasympathetic, the fight or flight versus uh, feed and breed. But what what we need to really understand is that stress in general is going to put you more into that sympathetic state. You know, stress is not going to put you into a parasympathetic state unless you're basically in a coma, right? It's not going to send you overboard. You're just going to keep ramping you up higher and higher and higher. And that is okay to a point, right? I mean, I want to have an increased level of arousal if I'm a linebacker and I need to get through the line to get to the ball. I want to have an increased state of arousal if I've just received, you know, a pass and I need to go and I need to score. I absolutely have to have more sympathetic tone, but the question is how deep do I want to go? Because if I am too deep into that sympathetic state, then what's going to happen is I'm going to lose that space that we've been talking about because my physiology is going to be taking over and I'm no longer going to be making decisions. Even if those decisions are quote unquote unconscious because of training, everything goes out the window because I am too deep. So what do we want? Where do we wanna be with this whole sympathetic versus parasympathetic? We wanna be balanced we want to be calm and we want to be alert, okay? And that calm and alert is going to mean different things for different situations, okay? So calm and alert for me sitting in my living room reading a book is going to be different than calm and alert out on the competition floor, okay? There's, that calm and alert is not a blanket state of arousal. So let's just talk about... a few different tools that we can use to get to that calm and alert state that is appropriate for a given situation. First, let's talk about breathing protocols. A breathing protocol is basically a ratio of time that you spend in different portions of the breath cycle, okay? So when you see this written, it's usually a number slash 
a number slash a number slash a number, right? So there's four numbers and there's three slashes separating them. These represent the different phases of the breath cycle. The first number is going to be the inhale. The second number is going to be the pause at the top of the inhale if there is one. The third one is going to be the exhale and the fourth one is going to be the pause at the bottom of the breath when your lungs are empty if there is a pause. Okay, so a breathing protocol or breathing protocols in general are very, very useful for helping you to feel the correct guideposts for what that protocol is trying to teach you or trying to help you achieve. Okay, so a, a really easy one for down regulation, right? So <clears throat> generally what we've been talking about is getting too deep into that sympathetic state and needing to pull back. Okay, so a good down regulation one to get you, you know, back into that more of a calm state would be a one, zero, three, one. So we're just talking ratios here, right? So we'll just say that um, my inhale is going to be two seconds, okay? So that means I'm going to inhale for two seconds, right? Got my two seconds, zero. So there's not going to be a hold. And then my exhale, because it's three, is going to be three times longer than my inhale was. Okay, so I'm gonna exhale for six, right? So, right, count to six. And then my hold at the bottom would be a one, so it's going to be the same as what my my inhale was, right? So it'd be two seconds. And that's, that's the way that we're working here, right? Because these protocols, since they work on ratios, you can adjust them on the fly. It's not one of those things of like, okay, I'm going to inhale for one second and I'm going to exhale for three seconds. And if it's not exact and perfect, then I'm not going to achieve this goal. That's really not the way that it works. They're a lot more flexible than that because not only um, do we have more general rules for breath work, but everybody reacts to different protocols a little bit differently because we're not all wired exactly the same. That being said, let's talk a little bit about what those general rules are. First of all, the breath is like a wave, okay? It's washing up and down the arousal scale from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And it does that with the inhalation and the exhalation. When you inhale, you're putting yourself more into a sympathetic dominant state just you know just slightly when you exhale you're putting yourself more into a parasympathetic state right so inhale fight or flight exhale feed and breathe and so the one that you spend the time doing the most is going to move the needle more that direction it's nudging it every time with that breath. So if my breath cycles, generally speaking, right, not talking about protocols, but just generally speaking throughout the day, are very inhalation focused and my exhale is garbage, that means I'm always going to be trending in the sympathetic direction. That means that my recovery is going to be poor. That means that my processing abilities may not be on par with the situation that I'm in. That means that I'm not going to be resting and recovering in ways that are as efficient as they should be because I'm most likely going to be out of sync with my environment. On the flip side, if I have a lot of you know 
exhalation dominant breathing patterns and habits, that's going to put me way down the parasympathetic end of things, which is usually good for most people because most people are trending the other direction, but it can be bad too, right? It can be um, disadvantageous for me to not have the level of arousal that I need if you know I need to go out and I need to practice, if I need to go out and I need to train and I'm having a hard time sustaining the level of neurological you know, recruitment, if you will, for those sustained activities. So we want to look at this as a balancing act and shifting things intentionally in the way that we want to shift them so that we're able to operate at an optimum level in the environment and in the situation that we find ourselves. And while these protocols are extremely useful and we can utilize them really easily right before an activity, right before a competition, right before a training and right after, it's a little bit harder to apply them when you're in the heat of the moment. And so they're a great training tool, a great prep tool, a great cool down tool, but it's something that is hard to apply when you're really, you know, you're in competition. And so there are a few other tools that we can use to help to carry over so that when we actually are in competition that we get the the benefits of the training that we might be doing with the protocol. So the next one is uh, carbon dioxide tolerance, CO2 tolerance, which we've talked about as well. The reason CO2 tolerance is important is because the level of CO2 in our bodies is what is actually cueing us to breathe. So if I have a very low CO2 tolerance, That means two things. That means that I'm going to be getting a lot of feedback from my system that I need to be dumping this carbon dioxide. So that's going to increase the rate and the depth of my breathing, possibly unnecessarily if I have a really low CO2 tolerance, which is going to push me in the sympathetic direction. But if I have a low CO2 tolerance, that's also going to make it difficult for my body to be able to utilize oxygen because we need to have a gradient. We need to have a gradient between the carbon dioxide in the tissues and the oxygen in the blood to have an efficient exchange. That's something that's called the Bohr effect, which we've talked about in the past as well. But just suffice it to say is that if I have more carbon dioxide in the tissues and more oxygen in the blood, they're going to switch places really easily. But if my CO2 is low in the tissues and I have high oxygen in the blood, that exchange isn't going to be as efficient. And so if you think about this in terms of um, like a graph, right? So if I'm operating at, you know, like a level, I don't know, we'll say level 12 and my CO2 tolerance, you know, just, this is not a real number. This isn't a real scale or anything. My CO2 tolerance is at a 14. Then I only have two, you know, two, you know, whatever units of headroom there before I start to shift into a really, really sympathetic dominant, uh, state. But if I have a really high CO2 tolerance, you know, say I'm operating at that level 12 again, but my CO2 tolerance is up at like 24, right? Then I have a lot more wiggle room. I have a lot more that I'm able to work with there before I get into that really sympathetic dominant state, which is going to drive me to really, really burn through resources and to not be able to maintain the space 
like we've been talking about, to be able to make those really solid on point, on the fly decisions. Again, increasing my CO2 tolerance is going to be a great tool because it gives me more headspace there in actually in performing, but it's something that needs to be done outside of that you know, time of performance, more of a preparation thing, just like the protocols like we were talking about before. So the last one is mechanics, okay? Breathing mechanics, right? So this is one that will actually be useful for you in the very moment that you're confronting whatever the stimulus is. This is the one that's going to be that's going to be very useful for you if, you know, you have to hit that insanely long field goal for your team to win. This is the one, you know, for that last free throw of when, you know, the game is on the line. Your breathing mechanics are huge, okay? So often we neglect the way that our body moves when we're breathing, but it's something that we do over 20,000 times a day every single day, and we have so much visceral proprioception for every single breath that we take that it shifts our nervous system immensely if we're just willing to be a little bit intentional about the whole thing okay so like we've talked about before when we breathe up really high in our body right so if you just draw a line horizontally across your body you know at the bottom of your sternum if you the movement of your breath is really above that line the majority of it is above that line you're going to be pushing yourself into a sympathetic state and if you're standing there about to shoot a free throw and you're dumping adrenaline into your bloodstream that you're not going to be as on point as you should be right that's the time where you know, nobody's blocking. You're not having to go against anybody. It's just you and the space between, you know, making the shot. Okay. So when we dial back or we step back and just observe the way that we're breathing in the moment, we can make huge changes. Okay. So a big thing with this is just paying attention to how it feels when you take a breath. Okay, so if you're in your training before you even, you know, before you touch a barbell, before you touch a dumbbell, before you take a step on the treadmill, before you start on the stairs, anything, I don't care what you're doing, just lay down on your back, bend your knees, put your feet flat on the floor, and feel your breath. Okay, take 20, 30 breaths and just feel, don't try and change anything, just feel it. And once you're feeling that, roll onto your side and let that top arm lay on your side and feel the way that your body moves underneath your arm and just take note of it. Take note of the way that it feels when you're not under any pressure, when you're not competing, when you're not worried about somebody else crushing you, when you're just there and you're just focused on your breath, okay? You're not going to feel like that in competition, but the way that your body is moving should be very similar. If it changes a ton, then you need to be able to 
take a step back and make this very short checklist and ask yourself, am I working at a workload that justifies me changing my breathing mechanics in this way? Okay. If you're breathing and not using your diaphragm, you're not breathing low into your body, then you better have a huge load on your back. Okay. That's it. If you're not breathing in a way that you get lateral expansion, it better be because there's pressure there. If you're breathing up really high into your chest and into your neck, then you better still be breathing with your diaphragm and you better be able to get back to normal breathing as quickly as possible. And that means breathing through your nose 100% when you're not exerting yourself very heavily. Okay. These breathing mechanics are, they're not rocket science, but it is very, very difficult to maintain them if it's not something that you're conscious about. Okay. So if, if you haven't spent the time to invest some intention into way, the way that you breathe and the way that that breath affects your body, then it's going to be very, very, very difficult for you to get the to reap the benefits of any of the other training that you've been doing right so if if you're working on your co2 tolerance and you're just crushing it and you know your original co2 tolerance test you were at like 15 seconds and then you retest a month later and you're at 65 seconds if you're doing that and then you go out and you breathe, you know, you're breathing through your mouth the whole time and you're just dumping all the CO2 during the competition. You're not reaping the benefits of that increased CO2 tolerance because you're not giving your body a chance to utilize the new adaptations that, you know, that you've been building with your training, right? And if it goes the same thing, if you're working through with different breathing protocols, you're like, okay, I'm able to downregulate like this. Okay, cool. And then you get out there and you start competing and you're trying to downregulate, but you're breathing in a way that moves your body that tells your body that you need to upregulate. You're, you're just canceling each other out, right? You're not actually, it's a net zero equation there. And so you absolutely have to be focusing on your mechanics as well, even though it's the least sexy and it's the most boring aspect of, of breath work. You have to do it and it needs to be something that is at the bedrock, a cornerstone of your training just in general. And that doesn't mean that you need to be spending two hours a week on this, right? This is one of those things that you, you'll lay down, you know, in hook lying that on your back, your knees bent, right? And you put one hand on your chest, you put one hand on your belly and you do it for 30 seconds, right? And you just pay attention. You pay attention to the way that your breath moves your body, right? Your body is not moving your breath. Think about it as your breath is moving your body and you need to get into that. Okay. You need to get into that movement because that is what's going to take you so much further than any other ridiculous exercise that you see on Instagram, because it's going to give you the space 
to perform mentally and emotionally in the ways that you need to. It allows you to show up as the best you. It allows you to be better at your movement practices because you are mastering the most basic movement of, you know, of life, right? And so these are a few things that you need to be paying attention to. So let's say that you check the box. Let's say that you're killing it on your mechanics, that you're taking that, you know, 30 seconds, that two minutes, whatever it is, just a little bit at the beginning of your training or the beginning of your day to pay attention to the way that you're breathing, that you're taking a few minutes a week to work on your CO2 tolerance, that you're really paying attention to where you're at with your nervous system, you know, sympathetic versus parasympathetic, and you're utilizing protocols to help you with that. Let's say those are, you're all, you're checking all those boxes. How can you be sure that this is going to be moving the needle for your performance? And the easiest thing to do is to just put it under load. You have to stress test it, right? And stress testing that might look like apnea sprints, right? If if your sport, if your competition necessitates that you sprint, then you need to do it under duress of impaired breathing. And so apnea is my favorite way to do that, right? So if I, you know, like I said, if I have to sprint and I'm going to do it with apnea sprints, that means I'm going to do it without breathing, okay? The easiest way to do it is to do it when you're holding an exhale because you don't have to work as much. That means your total exercise volume doesn't have to go up much to incorporate this into your training, okay? If I am going to be, you know, say, say I'm golfing, right? Go out, do three or four burpees under apnea, and then swing your club. Can you do it? I mean, it's it's hard, right? That accuracy is going to absolutely plummet. But if you're able to do that, if you're able to operate in an environment where your carbon dioxide is super high, where your nervous system is screaming at you, telling you that you need different resources, that you're in an extremely sympathetic state, but you're able to maintain the space that you've created through your breath work, then you are absolutely succeeding. But you got to stress test it. You got to put in the 10 to 15 minutes a week to work on your breath and then go out and stress test the adaptations that you're working. And if you do that, I absolutely guarantee your performance is going to increase. It will. Your mental, your emotional, your overall cognitive performance, your ability to create space to maintain the correct perspective when you're under the duress of competition can be an absolute game changer. And it doesn't take hours and hours every week to do this. You can do it in 15 to 30 minutes a week, but it does require some intention and it does require that you show up for yourself and you're paying attention to things that you may not have paid attention to before. But that's what this is all about, right? This is about you creating space. This is about you exploring your blind spots and becoming the absolute best version of yourself that you can possibly be. If this is something that 
you're interested in that you've been trying to dive into, but you just are having a hard time. You're not able to wrap your head around the concepts and you're, or you just don't know how to apply it to the work that you're doing. Hit me up. That is what I do, you know, as a physical therapist with movement and breathing because it is our most basic and most powerful movement. That's what I'm here to coach you on. I'm here to work with you as a one-on-one coach or just through a templated program that points you in the right direction. Either way, we can get you set up to help you reap the benefits of breath work through just, you know, that, that little 15 minutes a day. It can change your life and it can change your performance. It's done that for me and it's absolutely done that for many of my clients and it can do it for you too. I hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. If you found it valuable or if you know somebody who could benefit from learning about these things, please share it with them. Put it on your social media and go on and leave me a review where it is that you listen to your podcast, whether that's a five-star review, which I would definitely prefer, or a lower one with some suggestions that would be much appreciated as well. And I hope you have an awesome day. Thank you.